Well, for the sake of the CD, we'll say that this morning is Sunday. It is May 15th. We're going to preach on humility this morning. And it comes out of John 13. This to continue our series in John. And I just want to tell you, it was kind of awkward this morning because I wanted to teach on, on humility, but I had not this week spent very much time in John 13. I've been studying the nation of Israel, putting together an Israel trip, those kind of things. And uh, then I turned to John 13, not really thinking ahead of time about what it was about. And isn't it beautiful? I mean, there could not be a better display of humility than what we see in John 13. I want to start with this idea, though. And you can go ahead and turn to John uh, 13.1. When you hear the word humble, that's not a picture of strength in your mind, usually. You know, you think of a little mealy mouth guy or the two little birds one wants the other to go through the door first. No, after you. No, after you. People that can't make decisions, they're scared to death to be assertive or speak up. That's kind of how the world would view humility. Uh, meekness and humility are very similar words in the Bible. I want to encourage you this morning that to be humble or to be meek before the Lord means that you have all the power of God at your disposal. You just only use it at His discretion. To be humble does not at all mean that you're a weak person. In fact, it's just the opposite, and we'll see that. Humility is disarming. It is powerful. In fact, have you ever been in an argument with somebody that just didn't take the opportunity to lash back at you? You know? If I looked at Steve and said, you know, you are a stupid, and this is, couldn't be further from the truth, but uh, you are a stupid, blah, 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 and Steve looks and smiles at me and says, well, I love you. You know, man, doesn't that burn like coals? I mean, I, I know there have been a few times, just a few that Jennifer and I have been in arguments, you know, and you women do these things to men. Crying's just like not fair. It's cheating. When instead of lashing back, there were gentle tears rolling down the face. Well, what am I going to do with that? That is a powerful thing. And I'm not suggesting that we manipulate people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to act godly is strength. It really is strength. So in John 13, and Mandy, if you'd hit that. In John 13, I'm going to read to you a story that happened. Uh, the last week of Jesus' life. And as we discuss this, I want to talk to you about humility and what it means. By the way, if humble's not a bad word, and humility is not bad, but maybe they don't draw up the best connotation, humiliation is certainly not something anybody signs up for, right? What does it mean to be humiliated? I'll talk to you later about it, Judah. But it's self-defacing, right? It's something that is embarrassing, something that you don't want to happen. Well, with that thought in mind, let's begin in John 13, starting in verse 1, and we'll go forward from there. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. In other words, what Jesus is going to do right now, in some way, shows that he loves them to the very last shows just how far his love goes. Everybody that can't... Everybody that's been to a baseball game can quote John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. They go right into that. People that don't know anything about Christianity except what they've heard growing up in America can tell you God is love, right? They quote those things. And, well, my God's a God of love, not of judgment, not of... Blah, blah, blah. They can quote that and judge not lest you be judged. Those are the two scriptures everybody in America can quote, whether they've been to church or read a Bible or not, right? Look at what Jesus did to show the full extent of his love and then watch the command that he gives to us. 
The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is one of those things that if you didn't know about the Scripture, you think, what on earth is this about? He starts off by saying Jesus knew that he came from God, knew it was time for him to return to God. He knew that all things had been placed under his power. So he got up and wrapped a towel around his waist. How on earth could those two things be related? What on earth does one have to do with the other? Why would he say he knew that he was doing these things? He knew that everything was under his power, so he got up. And we're going to read about him washing the disciples' feet. See, when we think of humility, sometimes we think of somebody who's too scared to speak up. We think of somebody who is just cowering somewhere. The kind of humility that Jesus displayed was an assurance of who he was, who he was called to be, what he was called to do. And so he could do anything without fear of how it would look. See, as Christians, sometimes we get put in positions where you're fearful. You're fearful that if you act a certain way, consequences will happen. People might treat you differently. They might do things differently. But biblical humility comes from an assurance of who you are in Jesus. It comes from knowing what God has called you to do. After that, he had poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord... Are you going to wash my feet? Now, if you can't read this with in mind the attitude that Simon had, let me help you with this. Simon was seated in the last place in the table, the lowest place at the table. Those of you that have been through the biblical meal teaching, you know what I'm talking about. He's seated in the place where it was his job at an appointed time in the meal to perform this function. He was supposed to get up and go wash everyone's feet. Jesus was seated at the head of the table. He was seated in the place of honor. And when it came time, Simon didn't get up and wash everybody's feet. And Jesus, knowing that everything was under his power, knowing who he was, decided to show them just how far his love went. So an object lesson that he's doing. So when he gets to Peter, Peter's like, you're going to wash my feet? Because it would be improper for Jesus to wash his feet. Would you feel comfortable? I don't want to... <laughs> Those of you that are Democrats, would you feel comfortable with Bill Clinton washing your feet? Those of you that are Republicans, would you feel comfortable with George Bush washing your feet? Wouldn't that be a little bit awkward? I mean, who are you to have the President of the United States washing your feet? So Simon naturally kind of recoiled. Peter says, you know, I, are you going to wash my feet? No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. I'm sorry, starting in verse 7. Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Isn't that true about so many things in the Christian life? You don't understand what's going on, but later you can look back with clarity. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus expressed his will, and Peter said, No, it's not going to happen. Were Peter's intentions bad? No. He didn't want Jesus to humble himself to do this. He knew it wasn't improper. He knew it was his place to do it. Your intentions can be very good, but when you pick against the will of God, there are consequences. It doesn't matter who you are. Peter's the same guy that stood up and said, 
Wow, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Peter, for this wasn't given to you from man, but from my Father who is in heaven. You're a rock, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. Two paragraphs later, he looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You always have in mind the things of men. Because Peter had denied that Jesus should go to the cross. Here we still have Peter's same obstinate self-will. Jesus has expressed his will, and Peter, out of a good motive, but wrong thinking, says, No, Lord, never. But he's been corrected by Jesus more than once, and he knows how to handle this. You can relate to that, can't you, brother? Me too. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He quickly repented. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that that is why I said not every one of you is clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus was approaching the cross. This was the week of the Passover. In fact, all of Israel had taken into their home on the 10th of Nisan a lamb that they were inspecting. They were looking to see, were there any faults with it? Was there something that would disqualify this lamb from being a sacrificial instrument for them? All Israel was doing that. The disciples are examining Jesus up close. This is the week of the Passover. And he lays down an object lesson for them before he gets to the cross. All of us know that the cross was a... Jesus said, no greater love have one man for another than to lay down his life for his friends. This was another lesson intended to teach the same thing. Before we get to the cross, John says he's setting an example for them of how they should treat one another. But what is that example? This is right before the Passover. It was to show the full extent of his love. And he, somebody who was a Lord and a teacher, washed the lowliest person's foot there. Now, our emphasis today as we examine this, and I tell you what I believe it means and what we should take about out of it, comes from the very last verse and it comes from what's above the door. It says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I want to tell you today, I'm obligating you by informing you of what the Word says. If you who have now received this instruction don't put it into practice, there's no excuse for you. There's no excuse for me. We'll be like men who looked in the mirror, James said, saw what we looked like and walked away and forgot. The Word is intended to be an instruction for your life. What we learn today, we have got to find a way to put into practice. Everybody agreed with that? Okay. Mandy, would you hit that? From here, we need to know what true biblical humility is. We're going to go to a couple of scriptures. Y'all can turn to Philippians. But while we're turning to Philippians, I want to tell you, humility, as the Bible would define it, is the absence or denial of self-will in your life. Now, don't get the idea that that makes you an automaton, that that 
makes you some kind of mindless idiot. The denial of your self-will means that you've elected a higher standard. As a Christian, what's the higher standard in your life? It's God's will. See, Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you must lose it. And you think, what a confusing riddle is that? A Christian has to walk in the kind of humility that says, I may want to do something in this situation, but instead I will do what God wants. A few hours from this time period where Jesus is, you will find Him praying in a garden. And do you remember what He prayed in the garden? Father, if it's possible that this cup could pass, be great. But if not, nevertheless, Your will be done. He had a will as a human being that was not all that excited about what he was going to endure. Nevertheless, he wanted God's will to be done. That's got to be the heart of every Christian. What is beautiful about it is you find out that God's will for you is better than your will for you. And that if he wants you to do something or not to do something, in the long term, it's in your very best interest. All of us that have had kids can relate to this. I remember when Judah was very small. Judah had a uh, knife out of the drawer, like a steak knife. Well, to him, this is a shiny, beautiful instrument that he could dig with, he could play with. It's like one of his toys. As his father, I knew that that was potentially dangerous to him. He doesn't know that, though. And when I say, son, I want you to put that down, what does every kid want to do? But dad, you know, I want to keep it. It's, it's mine. To the child, it could look like mean old dad just doesn't want you to have any fun. It could look like mean old dad just wants to take away from you and cause you to do without. Live a life in burlap sacks. <laughs> what we have to do as Christians is trust that God's will is superior to ours. And if there's something He wants to remove from us or something He wants us to do, it's because He can see something that we can't. Do you want to serve a God that can't see things that you can't? I mean, He wouldn't be much of a God if He didn't see further than you did, huh? If you're going to follow a recipe and you're going to have a big big dinner, you better trust whoever put together that recipe, right? It'd be embarrassing you make the meal and it comes out nasty. I trust the guy who wrote the recipe. I believe that he's gone ahead of me, he's prepared the way, so we're going to follow it. Y'all in Philippians? Yes. True biblical humility, yeah, I'll tell you the chapter in a minute, I'm going to tell you reading ahead. True biblical humility is the absence or denial. It's being devoid of self-will in your life. In other words, you are not the governor for your life anymore. God is. That's humility. This is how Jesus can stand and look at Pilate and say, I have more than 12 legions at my disposal. But what shall I say? It was for this purpose that I came into the world. You know, should he turn away from it? No, he was doing God's will. Not that he didn't have the power to do anything about it. He chose to lay aside the human nature and take up God's will. That's an attitude of humility that we all imitate. In fact, the Hebrew for, or the word in Hebrew that means humility is anawa, from ana, meaning to bow down. To bow down before something is showing submission. The Muslims have perverted this in a horrible way. Did you know that the word Muslim means one who submits? The difference between a Christian... And I can't help but teach on these kind of things when I get the opportunity to sneak it in there. A Christian is somebody who submits willingly. To a Muslim, it makes no difference. You're a Muslim if they can force you to submit. But in the biblical sense of this word, it means to bow your will before God's will. That's what humility is. You can go ahead to the next slide. So in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3... Are you all already in Philippians? 
<laughs> You're not? Okay. We're going to go... Um, i got to get there. Yeah. The easiest way to remember this from, from Paul's letters is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's Giants Eat Peas and Carrots or General Electric Power Company. It's on page 1305 in the Thompson Chain Bible. If you don't have a Thompson Chain, you'll want one eventually. <laughs> I'm going to tell you all about that real quick while some of you are still turning. I have no particular love for the Thompson Chain Bible. Everybody loves what you're familiar with. You know, at the time, it was the largest print Bible that I could find, and uh, there was room to write in the edges. So people think I'm a salesman for, for this Bible. I really don't care. It's just easier when we're all on the same page. Okay, y'all, in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Let's concentrate on that verse for a minute. What was the definition of humility? It's the absence or denial of self-will in your life. Did you hear how he phrased this? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but... In humility, consider others better than yourself. So you might say that the opposite of humility is to do things that are self-motivated, that are out of your vanity or your conceit. My God, a lot of things fall into that category. Anytime you've ever been in an argument with somebody about who was right, you're not walking in humility. Anytime you are upset with your spouse because they do exactly what... Look, all the men are sinking in their chair right now. Exactly what you wanted them to do. You're not walking in humility. Because what that is, is that's an exertion of your will, and when it's not done, anger comes in. That's not humility. Humility is walking in God's will. So, in any case, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Before we get into the rest of this, I want to tell you something. Don't get the idea that humility is hating yourself. He said each of you should not only look to your own interest, of course we need to look to our own interest, but also to the interest of others. You should consider others' needs before you consider your own needs. doesn't mean you don't consider your own. I'm not telling you right now to not feed yourself. I'm not telling you not to bathe yourself. Dear God, please do that. And it's okay to wear makeup and nice clothes and those kind of things too. We appreciate it. But every action that we have should be weighed with God's Word and we should be thinking about others' needs as opposed to ours. Can you imagine what Christianity would be like if this verse was put into practice? Can you imagine what that would be like? You know, it, I tell you, it would be something attractive to people. It would be not Christianity viewed as dull and boring and dead and no fun. It would be viewed as something that was awesome. Because when you had a sincere need, there would be people wanting to meet that. And you would get joy out of helping to meet their needs. The early church worked exactly like that. They shared almost everything. You know, it's funny. In my life, one of the most difficult things that I ever did was move away from an established church that we had begun uh, with friends to a new area. Because for the first time in my life, there were not 25, 30 other men around me that we all, we all did everything for each other. I had no idea what it was like to truly go it alone. I'd never not been able to call somebody to help me fix my car or rewire my house or cut my hair or whatever it was. We all shared all things as in common because we were putting into practice that scripture. 
But it only takes a few who cross their arms and say, what about me? To really taint a group. It really does. Let's look and see what our attitude should be. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. As we get into this attitude, I want you to understand that there is a pattern in the Scripture. And this pattern is humility must come before honor. This is the absolute opposite of what you want to do. What we want to do is say, when you honor me, then I'll humble myself before you and maybe consider your needs. What the Bible teaches is you must humble yourself before you are ever honored by God. In fact, what Jesus was doing when He showed them the full extent of His love was He was showing them a way that the King of Kings would humble Himself before them to show them how to become great in the kingdom of God. It's the very thing He did on the cross. He laid down His life that He could be raised up and considered great before God. Christians have to take this attitude, and that's what He's going to teach. In John 13, you see that Jesus was a master serving His disciples. The idea that someone is called to greatness, but they become great by laying aside their own will and taking on the divine will is prevalent in Scripture. Watch how He says it here. Verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Keep in mind, this humility that He shows, it's not out of a self-defacing kind of thing. It's not, I hate myself. It's not, I think I'm no good, so you're all better than me. He knew exactly who He was. But He laid that aside for their benefit. See, don't mistake humility as weakness. If Matthew shows humility and um, considers my needs before him, that's not because I'm better than Matthew. That's because Matthew knows exactly who he is in Christ and he's doing this for the glory of God. See, sometimes when we don't get our own way, we think we were wronged. We were wronged and it didn't happen like I wanted. But did it happen like God wanted? Well, God didn't want my husband to act like that or my kids to act like that. Yeah, and did he want the reaction that came out of you? See, we're tested on purpose. We're put into situations so that as you're squeezed, what comes out of you tells you something about what is in you. When confronted in traffic, how quick are you to anger? When you're on the phone and nobody else is around and the salesman calls, do you respond to him with the love of God? When, you know, integrity they teach you in the military is what you do when nobody's looking. God's always looking. I'm not telling you these things so you'd be discouraged if your behavior hasn't been wonderful. We will be blessed if we put these into practice. My behavior's not been wonderful. That's surprise. Y'all shocked? You're going to get up and run out? I mean, talk to Jennifer sometime. <laughs> the truth is, ministry flows from a home. It starts with a relationship between a husband and a wife. Their children and their household is like a microcosm of a church. How you handle yourself there is supposed to flow over into a church. And what you do in the church is supposed to flow over into the world around you. And when the household is not right, the church doesn't look right. And when the church is not right, the world around you is not affected in the way that God intended it to be. That's why all requirements for ministry start with the head of a household. All of them do. Some of you are lucky. You're the only one in your household. It's easy. <laughs> you submit yourself out of love and it's fine. <laughs> 
Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. We can establish from the Garden of Gethsemane, which by the way means olive press, it was a place where you squeezed olives to get something out of them that was useful. Jesus was being squeezed in this garden. And what came out of Him was a sincere desire to do God's will, even though that's not what His flesh wanted to do. He was passing the test. Isn't that a good good feeling? Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death. Walking in humility means you'll be obedient to God's will, even if it means dying to your own will. That is hard to do. Sometimes you are just right. You know you're right. And how could they? Is it God's will that you pursue that? Couldn't you allow yourself to be wrong for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of peace? For the sake of unity? Jesus was willing to give up His life for you. And we won't even give up our right to be right sometimes as Christians. You know, churches have split over the color of carpet. Over whether or not they agreed with the stained glass on the wall. That's so far from the attitude of Christ that it doesn't resemble Christ and yet we call ourselves Christian, Christ-like. Cannot be. Cannot be. That's why the world thinks the church is full of hypocrites. It is. It is. But I challenge anybody in the world that says that to me, why don't you come in and be a real one? Even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him. What does therefore mean? It means based on what already happened, God did something. Based on the previous statement, this happened. Because He humbled Himself, God exalted Him. Remember, He did these things as an example. He washed their feet as an example to show them the extent of His love. And He said, you go and do the same thing to one another. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. Do you understand? That's a law in the Scripture like gravity. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It was for God's glory that Jesus was willing to humble himself, knowing that God would in time exalt him. It is to God's glory. Proverbs says this. It is to God's glory for you to overlook an offense. Did you know that? The Proverbs say it is to God. It's, it's actually to man's glory, which brings glory to God. To overlook an offense. So the next time you are sitting there with a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or son, daughter, relative, and you're thinking, they just don't understand. And you are angry with them. Remember, it is to your glory, it is to God's glory, to overlook the offense. Let it go. Is your God not big enough to correct them? Or does He need you to be their pit bull? You know, sometimes Christians don't act very much like Jesus. How often do you see Jesus chasing people around, chastising them for their behavior? Jesus had an attitude that said, hey, I'm the ultimate, you can follow me or not. And then people made up their own mind because his father was big enough to draw who he wanted, 
John 6.44 says, You cannot be saved unless the Spirit of the Father draw you. Well, let's take that attitude into our relationships. I don't have to correct every little thing in Jennifer, this Jennifer's life. You know why? She serves a God who's big enough to do that. She doesn't have to nitpick every little thing in my life and correct it because God's big enough to do that. And when I set up lines and I'm willing to fight, not only am I not walking in humility, I'm also robbing God of the opportunity to get through to them. Because I don't know about you, but once you and I have locked into an argument, it's twice as hard for me to hear from God. Because I'm right and I know I'm right. Isn't that sad? shouldn't be that way. and doesn't have to be that way. Because of Jesus' attitude, humility comes before honor. In Mark 10, you can hang a left from here. In the New Testament, the order goes Matthew, Mark. So it's the second book of the New Testament. In Mark 10, starting in verse 41. If you ever had the impression that these apostles, these disciples who walked with Jesus, were holier than thou spiritual figures who walked around sucking on persimmons all of the time, uh, simply you know, doing their little priestly blessing and waving incense, you're sorely mistaken. They were men just like us. They were not at all what that worldly church on TV looks like. They were guys just like us that struggled just like us. In fact, because they were ones being disciplined, or disciples, what you read about the most in the Scripture is their discipline. Their failures are written down for your benefit. For that, you owe them a great debt. Verse 41, When the ten heard about this, and what is it they're hearing about? Two brothers have come and wanted to know who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? That's a real Christ-like attitude. Am I going to be greater or is He? And can, all of, can, can the two of us be greater than everybody else? When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. How many of you want to sign up to be a slave? You didn't know that when you became a Christian, you did. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You have to be a slave to God. Now, it's a wonderful thing. The Old Testament shadow and type for this is that Judah could sell himself. He could sell himself as an indentured servant. And the Bible allowed this, but only for a given time period. And you know what would happen? Judah would sell himself to the Pharaohs as an indentured servant to work off some debts. And Judah liked living with the Piros so much that at the end of his servitude, which could only be six years, or could not exceed seven years, if he wanted to stay with them, he could become a bond servant, a servant out of love. They would take his ear to the door and pierce it with an awl. This would be a mark for everybody to see he's staying of his own free will because he loves me. That's how the Bible describes you. You're not a slave because God is over you punishing you. You're a slave because you've seen that the way that his house works is better than the way that the house you left is, and you'd like to stay with it. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The example that he set was an example of giving up his will for our benefit. You want to become great? Esteem other people higher than yourselves. What does that mean on practical terms then? Today, when we're on the line at Piccadilly, we don't have Piccadilly's here, huh? At Luby's. When you're in line at Luby's and you're thinking, I didn't really want to come here. My wife wanted to come here. And y'all start to bicker about that very thing. You have an opportunity to become great. You can say, sweetheart, I'm so glad we could be here. This is where you wanted to be. You know? Anytime you submit to someone else out of love, you have earned greatness in the kingdom of God. Anytime you don't, what's happened? You've shunned greatness. You've missed the opportunity to stand before the God of the universe and have an action that was declared to be great. Boy, when you frame things in that way, I don't know about you, but I have to, I have to push myself into corners in my mind. You know, when we talked about trials, I told you, a trial is the testing of your faith. As long as I think about a trial as something that's just hard to endure, I can be ticked off having to do it, be mad about it. But when in my mind I force myself to think about it as testing my faith, well, then I want to do well. I want to do it with the right attitude. I sure don't want my faith to be shown to be bad. Well, when you do this, when you apply that same kind of logic to this, this is a chance to be great. I don't want to stand before God and have missed this opportunity. It will force your actions to be godly actions. And so it's useful to do. Not only do you see this in Mark, but in Proverbs you see it said very well. So turn to Proverbs 18. If you want to find Proverbs in your Bible, take the middle of your Bible and you'll end up in Psalms and you hang a right until you get to Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs 18. True biblical humility is the absence or denial of self-will in your life. Proverbs 18. Look at verse 12. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. Now, if humility and pride are synonyms of each other, synonyms, antonyms of each other, and humility is the absence of self-will, what is pride? The exertion of self-will. Pride is all about you. It's all about self. Let's read this like that. Before his downfall... A man's heart is full of self-will. But humility or the absence of self-will comes before honor. You want God to honor you? Lay your will aside and take up His will. And friends, if you can't do it in the privacy of your own home, if you can't do it in your workplaces, or God forbid, you can't do it in a church setting, what on earth makes you think you'll do it when it really counts in front of the world? I would never deny Jesus. I would, I would be willing to die for Jesus. I would never turn my back on Him. But we can't lay down our will over a grilled cheese sandwich and you wanted a bologna? How many married couples... Y'all do not raise your hands. How many married couples fight on a Saturday morning over which spouse gets up with the kids? I know in my house that's been one. I was so happy when the kids... Yeah, the dog... I was so happy when my kids got old enough to govern themselves between 5.30 and 9-ish on Saturday morning. 
<laughs> yeah, till 12, 1, 2, 3 in the afternoon. Well, you're still in Proverbs. Let me read you one more and then we'll get off this part of this subject. Proverbs 15. You can hang a left. Verse 33. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom and humility comes before honor. If you can't display humility out of a desire to be great in the kingdom of God, if that just doesn't float your boat or motivate you, do it out of fear. Because God will not be pleased with you if you cannot walk in humility. In fact, God makes it His mission. Someday, you need to spend some time reading the book of Daniel. The last recorded words of one of the greatest kings that had ever ruled the known world, named Nebuchadnezzar, was God is able to bring the prideful down. That was the lesson that he learned in his life. If you ever get the chance someday to speak with Haman or read the book of Esther, we will find a man that was full of pride. That pride caused him to hate. And we're going to find out pride and violence and pride and anger are very close relationships. And so God brought him down. In fact, the very device that he designed to kill Jews, he was killed on. You find out a man like Herod, who, whose pride caused him to be received as a god, offended God so that an angel struck him and he died and was eaten by worms. Not a very nice way to go, huh? A tiger, a bear, something, not worms. <laughs> you know? I guess that made a bigger impact on me than y'all. <laughs> when honor does arrive... If, if you need to walk in humility before you get to honor, let's suppose that because you're doing such a good job in the kingdom of God, you are opening blind eyes, you're raising the dead, taking a stroll across the Sea of Galilee without getting wet. What happens when you do well in the kingdom? How many ministries have started off in the garage and done well, and when they moved to a cathedral, were something that's a stench in God's nostrils? How many people were interested in saving souls and being fishers of men and ended up being fishers of funds? How does that happen? Even in Christianity, you cannot be proud of your accomplishments. You can be proud of what God's done through you. In fact, in Luke 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, in Luke 17, we see the perfect attitude displayed again. 17 verse 10. Seven. <laughs> Seventeen seven. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The truth is, is the Bible likens you unto a king, unto a priest. It gives you a high station, a high calling. But it's required of you that you don't consider that something to be grasped. You'd be willing to be a servant to prove you're worthy of being a king. That's what the Bible requires of you. So even if you're doing great in the kingdom of God, you can't let something grow in your heart that acts as if well, I'm a great man of God. I'm a great woman of God. Of course, God does things for me. Look at what I've done for God. Lord, can you not think of people who have fallen into that? Don't you fall into that. Our attitude should be, we're only doing what God asked of us. 
Humility must be there before God can give you honor. And when He gives you honor, it's your job to point it right back to Him. What did Jesus say? He said, Father, glorify the name that You gave Me, that I might glorify You. Jesus' role on earth was to bring glory to the Father. There is one who brings glory to Jesus. Who's that? It's the Holy Spirit. You see how even within the Godhead it works. Jesus' role is to bring glory to the Father. He didn't come looking for glory for Himself. How did He get glory for the Father? By serving us. Doing something great. Doing something nobody else would do. Showing such strength that He didn't need to defend Himself. Showing such strength that He didn't need to argue about the way things would come out. He simply was who God called Him to be. Well, we could learn a lot from that. The believer is indeed exalted to a higher stage of manhood because of our union with Jesus. And moreover, we become a kingdom of priests. Peter calls us that and Exodus calls us that. But he never exalts himself. True humility does not produce pride. It produces gratitude. See, that's the difference. The lost guy does something and he swells with accomplishment. Look at what I did. The Christian achieves something and we swell with gratitude. Look at how good God into me. Boy, isn't one, doesn't one leave a sweet taste in your mouth and the other a stench in your nostrils? How many of you like to be around the kind of person that name drops and brags about their accomplishments? This guy that I interact with sometimes, and he's got that syndrome, from Napoleon syndrome. And he cannot help but talk about himself continually. I want to run the other way. Even if he has accomplished great things, it's no fun to be around him. How much better would it be if you had to discover that he did great things? Wouldn't you admire him? It's just a thought. Humility is placing God's commands before our will. Look at Psalm 25. Can you all hang in there with me for about 20 more minutes? Am I going to fall asleep on me? It hurts my feelings. <laughs> I'm sincerely hoping that we'll perform out there the things that we've practiced in here, I'm sincerely hoping that you'll walk away from this with a different attitude towards humility. That in your mind, you'll frame the discussion differently so that we won't give way to arguments and pretension. But that the weapons of righteousness that God has given us in our right hand and our left would be ready to demolish arguments and claims to who is right. That we would be more willing that we would be wronged than to have others look at us and go, they can't even get along. I'd never been in fights that were worse than church boardrooms. In fact, when I was first born again, I went to a church softball game thinking, this will be fun. You know, I can go do some athletic things with some Christians, right? In the first inning, there was a brawl. And this without beer. I'm thinking, you know, you can't even use alcohol as an excuse. You just mean nasty people. You know? And they were. Psalms 25, starting in verse 9, 8. In verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in His ways. Isn't it interesting He doesn't instruct the righteous? He instructs people who know they need His help. That's you and me. He credits you with righteousness. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. To be humble is to be taught the way of the Lord. To be being taught the way of the Lord is to be learning humility. It's not some... Gentle disposition, scared of a butterfly. 
It's to walk in the ways of God. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of His covenant. For the sake of Your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. I want to be instructed in that way. He will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. I want to be in the group that the Lord says there's a humility there that I can teach this one my way. There's a humility there I can confide in him. You think you're being honored if your boss takes you into their confidence. You think you're being honored if you were the friend of a mayor and they confided in you about the decisions they had to make. The God of the universe will confide in you if He finds your heart to be a humble heart. He'll teach you His covenant. He'll teach you His ways. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say He'll place His divine presence in you and on you. What an honor. Let us not dishonor that intention by acting in a way unfitting of Christians. You have a harder time finding this one. But in general, books that start with Z are towards the end of the New Testament. We're going to go to Zephaniah. If you can get to Matthew and hang a left, it's easy to find Zephaniah. You'll pass up Zechariah. Zephaniah is in the pages 1040-something. Zephaniah 2 is on page uh, 1047. Stay here long enough there. Everybody learns where all the books are. I have to sing the song from the beginning, you know. <laughs> I do it with my ABCs even. I guess I'm a simpleton. Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands. Who does He call humble in the land? Those that do the commands of God. Humility is obedience. Humility are people who lay aside their will and do God's will. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. You know, we've made Christianity so easy. You know, walk an altar, uh, get a gift certificate, some donuts, show up on Sunday every now and then, and you are good to go. Did you hear what he just said? He, he said, hey, you guys who are humble, who do what the Lord commands, Seek Him in His righteousness. Perhaps on the day of His anger, you'll be sheltered. Perhaps. Now, I'm not teaching you that you shouldn't be assured that God is saving you. But He does say work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why are you telling me that, Pastor? I'm telling you because it is not okay to allow ungodly behavior to dwell in you. It's not. Every one of us, though we are not perfect, has an obligation to strive for perfection. There is no room for compromise. There's no opportunity to back up and just call it even. There's no coasting in Christianity. You know, I used to ride bikes every now and then, and I lived for the opportunity to get to the top of the hill. Not so that I will have accomplished something. Not so that I can say, wow, it was fun to fight the resistance. I wanted to coast down the other side. I was looking for the vacation. Too many Christians are coasting in their salvation. They think because they've come this far, it's far enough. We don't need to be refined any further. Friends, you all still have a very long ways to go. And so do I. The one who called us is holy. And he demands of us holiness. And it starts right here between your ears. Stop arguing about stupid things. Stop placing your needs before everybody else's. Stop worrying that if you meet someone else's needs, yours won't be met. 
Turn off that voice that says, what about me? Inside of you. There's no place for that in a Christian. You can't do it. In Matthew 11 and in Matthew 18, you don't have to turn there. I must tell you about it because I don't want to run out of time. We see two different Scriptures. One, Jesus teaches that you have to humble yourself like a child. That's Matthew 18. To come to Him and that if you don't, you can't inherit the kingdom. A child knows from the structure of his life, especially young children, that the Father's will supersedes theirs. They don't have to like it, but they know they have to be obedient. My son can want to play Xbox all day, but when I tell him, son, stop it and stop it now, he says, yes, sir, and does what I tell him to do. Christians, you can want to do something so badly that you can taste it, but you must do what God wants. You've got to become like a child if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. The other one is, he said, hey, all you who are weary, if you're heavy laden, come to me and take my yoke upon you. For my burden is easy and it's light. I'm gentleness. I'm gentle and humble in spirit. Jesus, although he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders, said his burden was light and it was easy. And it's because he walked in the will of God. It was not a struggle for him. God places strength within you to do his will. When Christians get worn out, it's because we're doing our will. That's the only way to explain Paul's life. Shipwrecks, naked, beating, hunger, uh, in danger from his countrymen, pressed by the, the churches and them not doing well. And yet he said, I labor with all of his energy that works so powerfully in me. For it to work powerfully in you, you have to be humble. Love is really what makes humility and deeds flow together. Love is what makes this work. So turn with me to Colossians 3. Colossians, again, is in the 1300s in your Thompson chain. And Colossians 3 is on page 1310. Y'all won't love me less if I tell you the truth, will you? Colossians 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Guys, God has chosen you. You are holy because He's called you holy. And you are dearly loved. God highly esteems you. In fact, the most precious substance that there has ever been in the history of the universe was His Son's blood. And He poured it out for you. You don't spend the most precious substance on the planet for something that's not of worth. God esteems you. The Bible calls you His inheritance. Not, your God, not God's your inheritance. He says you are God's inheritance. He's looking forward to what you become. You're His inheritance. You need to see yourselves like God sees you. Holy, chosen, royal, kings, priests. But you need to carry yourself in a way fitting for the high calling that's on you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. It's funny. Wouldn't you think if you're writing a letter that is going to become the Scripture, you would have to teach Christians how to deal with the lost. Wouldn't you think? You'd tell them how to evangelize. You'd tell them how to perform miracles. You'd tell them how to magnify God, right? These letters tell Christians how to deal with one another. 
He didn't say, forgive uh, the lost person who's wronged you. He says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Your love for somebody should cause you to be able to lift their needs above yours. For you to be able to walk in humility. If you sincerely don't love them, you're working on it, you're striving for it, but it's just not there, let your love for God cause you to humble yourself before them. I remember Corey Tim Boom told the story about the Nazi captor who she was preaching in the church and he walked the aisle and he said, Fraulein, I know that God has forgiven me, but I need to know that you forgive me. Now, this woman had seen her sister die in the concentration camp. She had been standing before this guard and others naked, humiliated, abused in every way. So when this guy said this, her first thought is, Hades, no, I'm not going to forgive you. But out of her mouth, because the Spirit of God was in her, she said, I forgive you. She said that was the moment in her life and she lived late into her 80s that she felt the very closest to God. You know why? Because God's the kind of God that though you've wronged Him over and over and over, He'll show you mercy because it's what you need. God doesn't give people what they deserve. If He gave you what you deserve, none of you would have a chance. When I even say that, it's convicting to me. How many times do I give my kids what they deserve rather than what they need? How many times in conversation with your spouse do you give them what they deserve rather than what they need? Well, you don't know what he did. Does it really matter what does he need? How many times in your relations with your parents or your uncles or your brothers or your sisters do you give them what they deserve rather than what they need? See, that's not very much like God. And we're called to imitate God. Wouldn't it be nice if everybody did that? As long as it was by accident, I could step on Diana's toe and know that she'd love me anyway. Wouldn't mean to. Know that she'd credit me with good graces towards her, even maybe I didn't deserve them. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't you want to be around people like that? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Humility never produces pride, but it always produces gratitude. Do you hear that? When the Word dwells in you richly, you'll have gratitude in your hearts towards God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. How many conversations have you had that you couldn't end with the words in the name of Jesus? I've had a few recently at work in the stairwell that I cannot end with the words in the name of Jesus because everything that I said went against that name. How shameful. I'm called to a higher standard than that. And I blew it. And I have to repent. If you cannot end your conversation with the words in the name of Jesus, you probably ought not be saying it because He said everything that you do, do according to that name. Wives, submit to your husbands. God, that's a bad word in today's culture. As is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We'll move on. Suffice it to say we have to submit to one another out of love. And if you can't finish your sentence with in the name of Jesus, it probably ought not be said. 
How many things do you think fall into that category in a day? Jesus said we give uh, an account for every idle word. Every idle word. That's scary to me. I talk a lot. (laughs) Turn me to Ephesians. We've got a couple more scriptures and we'll stop. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. Ephesians is to the left of where you were. It's on page 1300. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling. God's called you to great things. Our lives need to reflect that calling. Hey, we had a royal official in England not that long ago wear a shirt that had a a swastika on it. Y'all remember that? Which one of those princes was that? Harry. Prince Harry. Why was that so offensive? Do you think there was nobody else in England that at a costume party wore something like that? Why was that so offensive? Because everything that that royal family is supposed to be about was fighting Nazism. People in his own country, of which he's a prince, fought and died to fight Nazism. And so when he wore that, that was not an action worthy of the calling that was on his life. Do you understand? I'm not saying that to condemn him. I mean, I don't have a clue about him. didn't even know his name. But it's no different with us when the words that come out of our mouth betray the calling that is on our life. When the actions that happen betray the very calling upon our life. We need to be real Christians. The world needs us in a bad way. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You know, Paul was called completely humble. In fact, he was said to have great humility. If the definition of humility is the absence or denial of self-will in your life, wouldn't it be good to have great humility? How did Paul get that? We won't read it, but it's in Acts 20. starts in verse 18. He tells them, He said, You yourselves know how hard I worked among you. With great humility, I labored among you. And then he begins to list all the things that he did. He did God's will in their lives rather than His own will. He had a right to receive income from them, and He didn't take it. He had a right to be received in a certain way, and He didn't demand it. In fact, He had lots of rights that he did not demand. Instead, he esteemed their needs higher than his. Now he's facing the Ephesian elders who know knows he'll never see them again. Knows that he's being poured out like a drink offering. That his life is fixing the end. And what's he exhort them to do? Love one another. Do likewise. Isn't that awesome? Great humility, it says. There are two occurrences of the word humble. The first two in the Bible. The first two times the word humble appears in the Bible. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what they are? The first one's in Exodus 10, 3. And it is Moses and Pharaoh talking. Moses has been telling Pharaoh what's going to happen, and each time he says it, it happens. And Pharaoh says, all right, look, you can go, but only go this far. And then he changes his mind. So Moses comes and says, hey, thus and so is going to happen. There's going to be gnats or frogs or blood in the water or whatever it was. And he says, so, uh, look, we don't want that again. Okay, y'all can go. And then he changes his mind. 
Finally, Moses stands up and says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself? How long will you refuse to humble yourself? Pharaoh could not. So what is Pharaoh known in history for? All of God's ten plagues came upon him. The firstborn throughout his entire nation died because he would not humble himself. He would not lay aside his will and accept what he knew was right. He knew God was with Moses. He just couldn't bring himself to let these slaves triumph over him. You know what the next time in the Bible is? It has to do with Moses again. Hmm? No. It is in Numbers 12. Moses had a brother. Moses also had a sister. Who is Moses' brother? Aaron. Who is his sister? Miriam. Aaron and Miriam in Numbers 12 had a hard time with Moses. You know why? They didn't like they didn't like a wife he chose. She was the wrong color for him. Apparently Aaron and Miriam were from the deep south part of the United States. They didn't like his Cushite wife. So they began to grumble against him. And one of the things they said is, has not God spoken through us too? Or has it been Moses only? The Bible says that God spit in Miriam's face. She had leprosy after that. Then speaking about Moses, it says, now Moses was humble. He was more humble than anybody else on the planet. Do you know that Moses did not stand up when they spoke against his wife, when they spoke against his calling and defend himself? It was not important to Moses for everybody to know that he was right and they were wrong. It was important for him to know that he was in God's will. So he didn't have to argue with them. He could display humility. And because he displayed humility, what did God do? What is the pattern? What did I tell you? Humility comes, then honor. God honored him. He took up his cause. He defended him. When you leave room in your life, when you're humble and you leave room in your life for God to defend you, for God to correct the other party, for God to come through for you, He does. But most of the time we leave no such room. We run right out and champion our own cause as if there is no God, as if we belong to no other, as if we're a God to ourselves. Now, that's kind of a problem, isn't it? There's some scriptures I want to close with. Take me to Psalms 149. Again, to the middle of your Bible. Hope y'all are quiet because you're thinking about it, not because y'all are going to bolt for the door and never see me again. <laughs> Psalm 149 is on page 702 in the Thompson chain. Starting in verse 4. For the Lord takes delight in His people. He crowns the people with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing joy on their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands to inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron, to carry out the sentence written against them. This is the glory of all of His saints. If you will humble yourself now, He will honor you then. Said, what was all that stuff about binding kings, swords and inflicting vengeance on the nations? Basically, this life is an opportunity for you to be faithful with the very few commands God has given you so that you will show yourself worthy in the life to come to be in the ruling class with God. 
It's what the Bible teaches. His kingdom will set itself up on earth. And those that have stood beside Him in His trials, the Gospel of Luke says, He will confer a kingdom upon them. You will be kings and priests. So if you can't humble yourself now, you're showing yourself not to be worthy of that then. Romans 12.3 says that you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you should. We already know that. James 1.19 says that you should be quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to become angry. I started to look at humility in the Scripture this morning, and every time we saw the opposite of humility, there was a symptom, and it was anger. When you get angry when something doesn't go your way, immediately you know you're not walking in the humility that God wants of you. And that should be... The Bible says, be angry and sin not. The emotion itself is not wrong. It should be a trigger. Whoop, something's wrong here. Why am I angry? Ooh, I'm angry just because they didn't do what I wanted them to do. I better love them and let God work that out. And if you do that, God will.